What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Thanks to you, this podcast continues to rank in the global top 10 podcasts by both Spotify and Apple Podcasts for the past two years running, and we hope you're enjoying our catalog of 150-plus episodes featuring guests from 12 countries across nearly 30 industries. My guest this week is Jack Zhang in this episode 157. Jack is the co-founder and CEO of Airwallex, last valued at $5.6 billion. Airwallex is a leading global financial platform for modern businesses, offering trusted solutions to manage everything from payments, treasury and spend management to embedded finance, serving over 100,000 companies around the world. Jack is responsible for devising and implementing the overall strategic vision of the company and under his leadership, Airwallex has raised over 800 million US dollars in funding, supported by top tier investors including Lone Pine Capital, Green Oaks Capital, Salesforce Ventures, DST Global, Sequoia, Tencent, and Squarepeg. Prior to starting Airwallex, Jack spent over a decade in various companies and roles in foreign exchange trading, investment banking, and also various entrepreneurial pursuits, including export and import businesses, starting cafes, and more. Jack was born in Shandong, China, and then moved to Melbourne, Australia, when he was 15, and he now spends his time mostly between New York and London. In this conversation, learn about Jack Sunrise in China, a very different country to what it is today, and the influences of the environment and his family. Both his parents worked in the banking sector, with his dad being sort of successful, as Jack describes it, and very middle class. Jack candidly reflects on moving to Melbourne, Australia when he was only 15, with next to no English skills, how he figured out life in a new culture and worked in bars and petrol stations to get by to then starting over 10 businesses which made him more money than his full-time job post-university in well-known corporates. Fascinating aspects I enjoyed unpacking with Jack include when did he know he could go all in to building Airwallex and the connection to a retail franchise coffee idea? How does he balance his introvertedness and his extrovertedness? We talk about building a retail franchise and inspiration from Asia and how raising VC funding in China and Asia in a coffee business or in consumer packaged goods is highly profitable, the story behind the birth of Airwallex in 2015 and what specifically gave him the belief he could build his vision into a company, the desire to make his daughter proud and how that drives him. We unpack various aspects of Airwallex's story not shared before, including the disasters of the first 12 to 18 months, building Airwallex and reinventing the product three times. We cover team building and people leadership. How does Jack know when he's hired the wrong person and questions he likes asking senior leaders before they join the company. Ask me about how does he de-stress as a founder experiencing panic attacks. 
learnings from other founders he's met, Airwallex's recent partnership with the F1 team, McLaren, why he chose to fund international student scholarships, and starting his fund, Capital 49. And listen through to the end to hear about Taylor Swift, golf, and more. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Jack Zhang, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, buddy, to have the conversation. I'm excited, man. This is this is one that I was really looking forward to, and, and I'm glad Paul put us in touch. So I'm hoping that this is fun for the audience. Let's start with some fun facts to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in a small town in sort of Shandong, which is the coastline on the northeast of, of China, and uh, came to Australia um, 2001 and, uh, you know, spent 20 plus years in, in, in Australia, in Melbourne. Um, then now I split my time between New York and London. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? I started my career in an insurance company headquartered in the UK called Aviva. So I was a software engineer building the investment platform using C Sharp and sort of most like a backend engineering. And later on, that moved into algorithmic trading and market making in sort of various investment banks. And I now the CEO and co-founder of Airwallex, a global payments and financial platform that empowering more than global businesses uh, to grow beyond borders. Mm. I'm going to talk about your career and all the different things you've done shortly. And Jack has the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? I I I like Kim Kim Jackson from Skip Capital a lot, and I think everyone in Australia knows Scott, the co-founder of Alassian, is like super successful, runs a large tech company in Australia. But also, I think. Kim have done a great job of, of running Skip Capital and just investing in the next generation founders in Australia. And, and she also had a passion for education and, and then doing like a great sort of charity work in that, in that area. And I, I really admire what she have built. And I think she deserved the recognition on, on what she does. Mm, I agree. And, and hopefully Kim can be someone we can interview in the future. I, I want to wind back the clock, Jack, and, and go to your Sunrise, and I think this is particularly interesting because you're a very private person, as I've come to learn. So we'll see how much we cover in this section. But you talked about China. What was the influence of growing up in China? How did that shape your upbringing? I grew up in a in a countryside, like a small town. I haven't really got in touch with technology when I grew up. So I had my first computer when I was in high school. Just like many people start sort of started my interaction with 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 computer playing games counter strike and starcraft and all that and and then that later on started programming and, and that's kind of how i started a computer science degree and kind of have a passion for, for for engineering and just writing code in general this is um, when china was quite different as a country right it's not like what it was today yeah like i i the, the place i grew up i don't speak English and I don't have education of, of, of like speaking English. So that also generally just lack of technology. And this is like early nineties and I grew up in a rural area. I have just don't really understand more than technology that much. And then don't really understand what technology can impact the world. I, the, I got my first computer and I'm playing computer games and I kind of got excited about 
what the technology can do. And then, then later on, I moved to Australia, I think when I was 15-ish, and and I live in the, in the Aussie family by myself. So I, I learned English and and I, I, I do like work very hard, like many jobs when I was in college. I had a tough time financially when I in a college. So I had to basically work like multiple part-time jobs, spending 16 hours a day working while I'm, I'm studying full-time, right? It's a, it's a pretty challenging period of my life. Wow. And I'm curious, so I'm Indian heritage and we both know in Asia, family is very important. What was the influence of family growing up? My my dad is sort of successful and running a, a regional bank in China that have oh. thousands of employees, so that upper middle class. But when I moved to Australia, I think when I was 16, my family, my dad sort of uh, lost his job so that so we had some financial difficulties and since that time and my mom also worked for a large state-owned bank in, in China and then she basically had to resign from her full-time job and and then started a, a small company just to support me to to continue the study in Australia. And I also had to work many, many jobs, right? And I work in, in as a as a in a restaurant and later on I worked in uh, Western Hotel as a bartender and also work in coast as in a petrol station between like midnight and, and wow. to the morning, like work like literally, you work like between four to, to, to midnight in, in as a bartender, then you continue to work till the morning in, in a supermarket, the, not supermarket, the, the coast petrol station. Yeah. So, and I assembly computers on the weekend and jailbreak playstations for, for other students so like to get paid 150 bucks a, a playstation so they did a lot of fun stuff to make money that's so interesting thank you for sharing that because i think most people wouldn't know that you had this these many jobs that you were doing and was was there a particular reason you came to australia because i think most people from china like to go to the us right like the us is the first place they go to i think i came to australia right after 9 11 and i think there was a particularly sort of bad period to go to us and and mm. uk considered too expensive and right. I briefly sort of stayed in Canada for a bit, I guess I have relative there and didn't get along. And so Australia or Canada, the only option. Yeah, right. And you said you were 15. So that was high school, right? Not university. Yeah, I think 15, 16-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So you finished your high school in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, went to, uh, I went to a high school called West Point Grammar in uh, Hoopers Crossing. Oh, yes. Uh, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, I know that area. I know that area quite well. Interesting. And I, I spoke to a lot of people leading up to this, and they all said you're very driven and very ambitious, and, and that's playing out in Airwallex. But when you were 18, because you've got these influences of China and Australia, what did you want to do with your life? Like, what was success at 18? I think I had a, I think academically it was very strong when I was in China and also as a student leader. And I started some student magazines that went quite successful. So I'm sort of famous in my high school because my, my English is really bad when I came to Australia. And I basically went from, from like someone like very confident and, and reasonably respected in a, in a student community and to somebody like nobody recognized. And, and it's just in general quite challenging in 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 high school like because of the the lack of the english sort of skills and and that kind of not helping with my communication and just making friends in general and my high school is in the western suburb and there's only like a dozen chinese sort of heritage students there and most of them are from macau and hong kong mm. and then generally they they look down people from mainland china so that kind of not a great experience either 
Right. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And that, that again would be really hard because I've seen that I went to school in, in Melbourne as well. And, and there was a divide between international and local students. We actually had an exchange program with Korea and the Korean students would come to our school every year. And it was, it was definitely challenging. So I appreciate you, you sharing that. And then what did you decide? I think at uni you did computer science, right? You did a bachelor of engineering. Is that right? Yeah. How did you decide on that? What was the influence to do engineering and computer science? I I thought it's pretty cool to make money in front of a computer without going out. I think I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sort of an introvert um, person, but I can be very extrovert when when a job requires me to. So I think most of the people thought I'm extrovert, but I think I'm borderline introvert as well. And I, I thought it's pretty cool to write code and. And that's kind of smart people do. And that's how I, how I got into engineering and computer science. And would you say by the time you, because I think it was 2004 when you got into the University of Melbourne, were you more adjusted to Australia? Like, did you feel more like a local? Not really. I think because my lack of the, the English skill set, I think that I had a generally a tougher time to make friends with, with, with locals. And it took a while for me to get used to the, the life there. And then because of that, I mean, I didn't do super well academically in the uni as well. And I also had to work so many jobs just to continue to support my, my study financially. I spent very little time in, in a college. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just spending like 16 hours working and also work on the weekends, very hard to, to, to do that while I'm studying. Yeah. So what was your first job when you graduated from that degree? What, did you, what was your first full-time job? Was that job at um, Aviva? Is that right? Yeah. So that was in London, right? Or did you work in Melbourne first? I, I work in Melbourne and I, I basically in a, in a graduate program okay. that I able to like work in different parts of the, the company. Yeah. Because I, I did hear from a lot of people that I think between the age of 20 and 30, you started like 10 businesses. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, I, I, mean, I started many businesses. I Even I was in college, I, I was trading textiles, so basically importing textiles from China and then sell to retailers in Australia. I was exporting red wines and olive oils. And from Australia, I also have a real estate development company and managing projects and residential and commercial project. I started a, a burger shop. I started like a, a coffee, especially coffee place called Tuck and Co. Mm. And, and obviously we had a lot of issues of, of making payments from that business. And, and that kind of inspired me to, to found an Air Wallace. And this is all done on the side apart from my full-time job. So also I was, I was making 10 times the, the, the money outside of my full-time job because I, I always loved writing code and loved the engineering, especially in trading. I always keep my full-time job, continue to write code and just do these side hustles and side projects with my friends. Generally, I'm able to convince a friend to do a full-time. So I'm able to manage all this while I have a full-time job. And, and did you tell your parents that you were doing all these side businesses or you just told them you had a full-time job? I, I think they sort of know I'm doing a lot of stuff, but they right. didn't know like the relevance of like how, how important it is or how significant it is. We, we, we were making a, a few million dollar profit a year. Running all these side businesses was quite profitable. So I never really interested in, in promotion in my, in my full-time job in NAB and A and Z because I was making 10 times the income of my managing director. <laughs> wow. Because you were, I think you were in corporate jobs with Aviva, NAB and then ANZ for almost eight years, right? 
Yeah. So when did you, I'm always curious about this. I think you see it a lot now with side hustles, right? Was you started these side hustles in, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. When did you know that you could leave that full-time job and go full-time? Was that when Airwallex started or did you do that before Airwallex? I had a sort of startup in between jobs in, in Hong Kong, but I wanted to, to build a currency trading or overlay currency overlay platform for mutual funds. And that didn't go very well. So that that's, and I, after I failed that, and I basically continued to build the real estate business, which is very profitable. And then the coffee business and the, the burger business was sort of after that as well. And then because we basically look at Telstra, Fast 50 at a time, and we thought over a third of the company on the list is, is retail franchise businesses, like juice bar or, or like different burger chains and coffee chains. And then and we also saw a trend in, in sort of 20 of all the younger population in Asia potentially going to adopt to the coffee culture as a lot of them are Western educated. And we are actually exactly right on the, on the prediction, but because we found the, the Air Wallace opportunity during that coffee startup, we just didn't pursue that further. But mm. we were going to basically build a, try to build a, a big franchise business of the specialty coffee that we founded in Melbourne. Interesting. Interesting. I don't think you would have got VC money for a coffee business. <laughs> they wouldn't have well, backed you. <laughs> I mean, but if you look at Manor or Larkin Coffee, they're all like multi-billion dollar businesses. Yeah. So, And then we actually saw the trend much earlier than they saw it. So I would argue that the valuation, that coffee business could potentially be as good as, as Airwallocks. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And you probably have more equity, right? You probably have more equity in your, in your coffee business. Well, so. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure I would get venture capital on that. And then all these mm. coffee retail businesses are actually also venture backed. I think the, the venture landscape in, in Asia or in China specifically is very different to Australia. So you can't really use the what you see in Australia, what venture are yeah. investing to, to kind of think about what's the overseas market look like. Yeah. So you mean there's more different types of investments overseas, right? Because Australia is Yeah, like the consumer is massive, right? Just looking yeah. at the amount of tea startup in China, right? So there's yeah. tens of billions of money put into that startup and each of them are all multi-billion dollar business and, and very profitable, mm. right? Across mm. South Asia, across China. PT is over, over $10 billion, right? So they mm. continue to expand. And a bunch of these, these examples in, in, in China, South Asia. Mm. Mm. I, I want to come back to venture capital in a second because we'll talk about that with Airwallex. But let's go to 2014. I think you started Airwallex in December 2015, right? Correct. So if you go to 2014, tell me about what were you seeing in the world at that point? Because I think now fintech and payments is such a big category. But back then... As you said, with the coffee shop, I believe you were trying to do FX fees and it was really high. But tell me in 2014 and early 2015, what were you seeing in the world? What were you reading? What sort of stuff interested you? I think in 20, sort of 12, 2013, I remember NFC was a big thing that you can tap on the phone and make a payment. And I was very interested in it. I think about 2013, I was talking to uh, my co-founder, Max, to start something very similar to Square uh, using AFC technology and just see the trend of, of mobile payments taking off. And we did a prototype and I pitched my CTO, Jacob, at the time he, he, he's running another startup. And, and he basically disagreed with me completely on that idea. And he was, he was in China, he saw QR code taking over the world. 
And he's like, what What are you talking about? What is NFC? I mean, this thing is like last generation stuff. QR going to take over the world. And I, I'm not interested in this idea. I'm arguably speaking that if we continue to to that to build that startup, we'll, we'll a much bigger company today because that's like three to th- about three years earlier than Airwallex founded. Yeah, right. So but then what gave you the confidence to build Airwallex? Because as you spend a lot of time with founders, I spend a lot of time with founders, you need that conviction and belief in yourself. What gave you that belief in yourself to go, let's try this? I think a couple of things. Number one, I was financially independent, right? So I, I don't have to work and my business is very profitable. And I, I built quite a lot of businesses and every single one succeeded, right? I haven't failed anything apart from the the, the software startup I try to do in, in Hong Kong. And, and then two is that I think in 2015, my daughter was born. I was 30 years old and I, I, I look at her, I was like, oh, I haven't done anything that make, make you proud. <laughs> and and that that kind of makes me seriously think of like what my impact in, in, in sort of the society looks like and, and what gonna be continued to to invest my, my time on for the rest of my uh, life. And and I don't think I will have a future to make that such impact in the corporate world. And hence I, I decided to start Airwallocks. I was listening to a few of your interviews on on YouTube and in, in one of them, you said that in those 10 businesses that you built, you didn't find something you're passionate about, but Airwallex was the first time you found something you're passionate about. I think a lot of people, particularly young people today, go through that. I'm sure a lot of them speak to you and go, Jack, I want to find my passion. How did you know that was your life's work in a way? I always passionate about technology. You think about my, my my college days, right? I see the rise of, I don't know people if still remember like Friendster, mm. like even before Facebook. Space. I saw the rise of, of Google and Facebook and a bunch of these like a massive tech startups and then Tencent, Alibaba and all that. So it's a massive influence on my, so how I grew up and how I influenced by those those massive technology success stories. And also I studied computer science engineering. So I'm always have a passion of writing code and have a passion of technology and how technology can influence the world. And also it's it's massively like scaled in a short period of time. And that's what why I'm always stay full time and writing code, even that I'm making so much more money outside of my full-time job. And that's what inspired me to to start Airwallocks. Mm. And how did you start? I love asking founders about the first 12 months because I think the first 12 months or the first 18 months are very foundational. What were the first two or three critical things you did that you look back on that set the foundation really well? Unfortunately, I couldn't tell you anything great. Tell me the bad things. Tell me the bad things. What mistakes did you make in the first 12 months? (laughs) Everything in the first 12 to 18 months become a disaster. Okay. So we started a company... And the idea was that we can build a peer-to-peer algorithm to get the best price for people exchanging currencies, right? So if you have custom, if you have cu- customer sending money from Australia to Hong Kong, and if you have also have customer that sending funds from Hong Kong to Australia, that in in theory that you can just to do a match and you get the the fair exchange rate, which is the interbank rate. But we never able to get that algorithm working in in a in a in a reasonable way because that that just we just that that essentially is a marketplace. You need both the demand and supply. You need a lot of you know, uh, uh, 
transactions in different countries for your algorithm to work, and you need like a decent scale for that to work. And we did a simulation on the on the algorithm. We just we just can't see how can we get the scale by bootstrapping it, uh, but just do a peer to peer matching. Ultimately, that that's how we that's the original idea. We 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 failed miserably on on that, but we didn't give up. We just continued to to figure out ways to 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 build it out. And my experience in as as a sort of algorithmic trader or, or technologist in in the front office of investment bank kind of helped as I built market making FX training engines multiple times, and was lucky. I cold called Macquarie and another liquidity provider in the UK, and they they are willing to work with us. In we have zero transaction volume. I called a bunch of friends in, in Hong Kong and, and, and Australia that used to work with me. And I said, hey, can we connect your interbank liquidity so I don't have to figure out this peer-to-peer algorithm? And they, 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 the response was like, are you kidding me? Like, come back, talk to us when you have a billion dollar quit, like a billion dollar volume, right? Wow. And I, when, like, because in the, in the interbank world, people talk about, and, and the, we got rejected by all my friends. And, and like, luckily, like, I, I cold called a few people and they, they are able to convince them to, uh, to work with us and give us interbank liquidity. The interesting part that you're saying here is you said earlier to me that you're an introvert. Introverts don't cold call. Cold calling requires you to like put yourself out there. So I think you've clearly got that desire to connect with. Well, you, right. you, you, you're basically facing a, a, a two sort of binary outcome. You either cold call or you fail. Hmm. It's a very easy binary choice to make, right? I don't think that kind of a, a proof that I'm extrovert or introvert. I, I'm just facing a multiple choice with hmm. a binary outcome. Hmm. True, true. So how did, you get, how did you get people to agree to work with you then? Because as you said, payments is so complicated and, and it's, you require that credibility. How did you get, how did you convince people? We, we, we are lucky we, we got venture backed. I mean, that we leveraged the investor name mm. and that kind of give us in, in, in 2015, early 2016 raise venture funding in Australia is, is quite rare and it's still quite nascent in the industry. And are able to leveraging the story that we're able to raise venture money and, and, and to, build that credibility for people to work with us. Also selling the vision of the company. When we had nothing, I basically said to, to the guys <clears> that giving us intrabank liquidity that we're going to be processing billions in the next 12 to 18 months, right? <laughs> mm, mm, and, mm. And, and, and hopefully that will come true. Yeah. Uh, and also getting licenses in, in Australia and Hong Kong was generally difficult at the time. And, and we have to, I have to get my ex-employer, NAB, my ex-manager, to kind of write, write a recommendation letter to ASIC to say I have the credibility to run a, a fintech business or a market making business in, in FX and, and non-cash payment. And that is also challenging. Back to the episode in a moment. If you're new to the High Flyers podcast and enjoying today's episode with Jack Zhang, you might enjoy episode 130 with Paul Bassett from SquarePeg or episode 120 with Tim Doyle and Alex Badron and enjoy all 150 plus episodes on our website at www.thehighfliespodcast.com. Now, back to the episode. I have heard a story, so I wanted I want you to tell me if this is true or not. I heard that early on you met the Google co-founder, Sergey Brin, and he said your ambition's not big enough and you reinvented the product. Is that is that true? That is not true. Okay. 
Did you meet him yeah. at all, or was that later in Airwallex? That's later in Airwallex. So I I met him a few times, but not 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 early stage. Okay, right. Because because I I think you did tell me the other day that you've rebuilt the business three times, right? So when was that first reinvention? I guess that you were like, okay, we haven't reached product market fit. We need to reinvent. Well, we we did the peer to peer algorithm, and we used that to raise venture funding, but that never come to reality because we didn't have the scale and the volume to do that, to make the algorithm work. And then we got lucky that we we co-called liquidity provider to get interbank liquidity to, and then to, to work with a company had nothing. Then we, we got the infrastructure to get the best FX rate for our customers. And we also built an invoicing, like a bill pay platform on top of that for SMEs in Australia. And that's sort of the second time we're building the product, try to try product market fit. And we also failed miserably because we can't find enough customers yeah, making international payment in the limited corridors that we, we have payment rails to. I think at that time, initially, we, we can only pay out to, to Hong Kong and then a few like Asia countries. And we just couldn't get, and we also don't have the money to acquire SMEs, which is very expensive. Uh, I think that the cost of acquisition is above $1,000 and then we just don't have the funding to do so. And when we, but we did leveraging the, the bill pay platform and the, the interbank FX liquidity, uh, FX trading platform to raise Series A from Tencent and, and Sequoia and MasterCard. Obviously a very complicated process to convince them. Uh, I think we were lucky that we got, we got into the, the MasterCard global sort of start pass program as the only company out of Australia in history and also the first company in Asia Pacific. And that gives us a lot of leverage from a credibility standpoint. So the MasterCard been helping us connect to different banks, CEOs and stuff like that. And our vision also evolved from just a FX trading platform, giving wholesale or interbank liquidity to retailers or small businesses to build a next generation money movement platform to disrupting SWIFT, which is built in the mm-hmm. 1973 on top of a correspondent banking network that on top of like thousands or tens of thousands of banks that we start building direct money movement rails ourselves by integrating with local payment infrastructure in every country in the world. You need to be regulated, you need to get the central bank approval, you need to work with a financial institution or bank in general to access the the, the local payment schemes one by one, country by country, right? So. I think that the company just really evolved after we got Series A funding and the vision got evolved from FX trading platform for SMEs to a global payments and money movement infrastructure company to help larger businesses to make payments in the world. And that is the the, the, the third time we, we're building the platform. And the, the first two customers are, are MasterCard and, and Tencent, right? So that... It is. We went from like try to acquire SME to to basically building API money moon infrastructure for large enterprises. That's and we we were succeeded with that with the, with with the third time we trying. Mm. I've got three topics on my notes. You tell me which one you want to talk about. So I've got. We can either focus on go to market, building a team, or raising venture capital. Which out of the three do you want to focus on? And I'll ask you a few questions. I mean, it's, it's up to you. Whatever that you feel like the audience is interested in, I'm happy to talk okay, about. Okay, maybe the team the team aspects, I think, interesting because as you touched on before, you're only one person and you need a team. Who were the, What were the key skills that you needed in the early 
like first two, three years of AWOLX that you reflect back on now and you're really glad you hired those skill sets? I think because we, we pivot the business three times, right? Or twice. And then the third time we're building it, we evolved to a global payments platform for larger businesses, building API infrastructure. And clearly there are not enough larger businesses in Australia. So that I basically had to relocate it to, to Hong Kong to start looking at working with these larger businesses in, in, in Asia, specifically like China, business, China internet companies going global. And I think that kind of require you, you, you hire a different caliber of people. And we were lucky the bunch of people I hired in Series A is still with AirWallet today. If you look at our, our GM in APAC and our sort of chief commercial officer in, in, in China, and a bunch of early AirWallet people still with the company after eight years. And, and that's kind of half luck. And then the half is just that I'm able to convince those, those really good people to join me early on. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying I haven't made mistakes, right? I, I made many mistakes of hiring the wrong people. And you learn from those how mistakes. Do you, how do you know when you brought the wrong person? When do you know that that person's wrong? Your intuition. I think you sort of know very quickly whether you hire the right or wrong person. I think a lot of the people having a challenge of to process information and make a decision on the back of that. And, and if you drag along that process for too long, and that will kill the startup. I think all founders need to really trust the intuition on people and making decisions early on so that they, you don't drag the company down. Do you still interview the senior leaders that come into AWOLX? Are you the final interview? Of course. What I, kind of I, questions do you ask? Like if I'm applying for a chief commercial officer job at AWOLX and I get interviewed with you, what are some questions you would ask me? I would ask you, what, what is your motivation to join AirWallet, right? Why, why do you want to join us? And, and, and that's really important to me. If you, join, if you want to join AirWallet because you want to hire a pay or a salary, then clearly <laughs> uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like that. I, I think people need to really have a clear motivation, whether they want to grow their career, what they want to make an impact, or they want to join a high-growth company. We're operating in a, in a highly complicated environment. I mean, that's all valid reasons, right? So I think the second thing I... Right, really try to understand is that people have the intellectual curiosity and an ability to solving problems um, in, in, a, in, a, in a complicated world. And then you, you really kind of test that by asking, tell me, like, what's your biggest achievement in, in, a, in the last sort of five to, to, to 10 years? What you have, what's the most complicated problem you have solved? And they, they generally able to tell you something and then you just go ask the question on the back of that, right? Just go multiple mm-hmm. layers down to try to, to, to drill down whether that person have real in-depth curiosity or they just sit, sit on the servers, right? So I've interviewed somebody said, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in macroeconomics and I'm like, okay, tell me about it. Wh- which particular area of macroeconomics interested in? It's like, okay, I'm, uh, say I'm interested in currency trading or how currency price fluctuated. I'm like, okay, tell me about more about it. What impacts in the currency price fluctuation? And then they, they, they give me an answer. I will, okay, just tell me, tell me, tell me more about it. And then you, if you're kind of able to have the ability to kind of just keep drilling down on, on question of another, another, and ask the why of the why of the why, and then and you, you're able to very quickly figure out that person have depths or not. Mm, yeah, totally. I think another part of that that I love speaking to founders about is how someone evolves with the growth of the company. You talked earlier about hiring people at Series A, and I think you're now at Series E. 
right? That was your last round of Series E. What have you noticed about people that are able to evolve with air wallets? Because as you've said, the, a core part of a startup is quick growth. And I know a lot of people join a startup, but then they can't keep up with its growth. What have you learned there about people management and I guess culture building as well? Like I know you've got these operating principles that are on YouTube now. What is critical there in terms of making sure people can evolve with the company? I think people's personality is more important than, than kind of intelligence in, in a startup, especially in, in a hyper growth phase, because you feel rejection, you, you, you're you facing denial, you, you're facing frustration in, in almost every day of, of, your, your, of your job. If you join a company that have a sales motion a product market fit already, it's very easy to just do your job because you have all the infrastructure to follow the process and, and here you go, right? But when you are selling a product that not quite get product market fit, you need to talk to customers, get their feedback and facing constantly denial. And that is not what everybody likes to do. And you, you basically have to be very resilient and very curious about what you can do to fix those problems. So the, it's, it's, it's more like a... a a job of, of fixing problem or solving problem instead of like a, just get a smooth sailing of, of, of what you do. And I think, and also like, because the company have a different requirement and demand in different stage of the company, your skill set also evolve, right? And so you have to grow very quickly and adjusting yourself. You have to have a very low ego. You have to be less territorial. Um, and you have to be generally like curious and, and then just wanted to improve yourself. Most of the people that we had to let go in the early days of Air Wallace is because the, the ego and the territorial mindset is like, okay, this is yeah. my team. You can't, you can, you, so you want to tell anything that of working for me, you have to go through me, right? That's just a completely wrong mindset. And we were kind of the same. And then just, let's just work together to figure out how to solve the problem. Forget about this is your team or his team or, or my team. And mm. this is my people, or your people. Like we all kind of work as a common vision. Let's just f- focus on the problem. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I want to transition into VC because I think you've got some good context there and also founders because you spend a lot of time founders internationally as well. But before I get to that, I want to talk about, I think just you, like how do you de-stress? Because I think people don't appreciate how hard a founder's life is. I think people in the media or people on in society think it's a very easy job, but I spend a lot of time founders and I'm a founder myself in some ways. It's hard. You're lonely at times, particularly in the early days. There are expectations. How do you de-stress? What What are some things you do outside of work to just go, I'm going to enjoy life like, or switch off? To be honest, I never switch off. Um, and I probably worked like 100 hours a week from I was 16 years old for at least 20 years. Yeah. Um, I never felt I need to de-stress. Um, but you play, you play golf, right? You play golf and I think you ski a bit. Very little uh, when okay. I'm building the company. I've only started to play a bit more golf and uh, and ski a bit more in the last two years. As, as Air Wallace is now profitable and, and, and have true scale. And there's a machine that continues operating while I'm not there. But that was not the case in the first sort of six, seven years of building Air Wallace. And it's, it's very chaotic. It's very intense. Mm. And I don't have a very good way of managing stress. I get stressed out all the time. I get a lot of anxiety. I had multiple anxiety attack. I went to the hospital multiple times during the startup wow. phase. Wow. Wow. It's a lot of sacrifice. I think people generally underestimated the amount of sacrifice as a founder to start a, a technology business that have true scale. Like I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't ask my daughter to. I wouldn't <laughs> want my daughter to found a startup. What would you What would you advise her to do if you could advise her to build her career? What, what would you What What do you think in today's world is like the next big thing? I think that's irrelevant. What of what my I want my daughter to do, right? I just want her to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> right. What What is the next big thing is relevant for for her happiness, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You could be the most successful person in the world, but your life could be miserable. And and I've seen that mm. <laughs> in real life. Mm. And but you could be just doing a a normal job and then just be very happy. I I I want my daughter name is Ella. I want Ella to to do what she's passionate about whether it's arts or it's it's music yeah anything that she feel passionate about i don't have the expectation she will be the doing the next big thing in the world mm-hmm. you sound you're a very different asian parent i think most asian parents would be like do this so <laughs> um and, yeah, and- I, feel, I feel like a lot of the asian parents like they're not super successful themselves so they force their kids to yeah. to do that yeah um yeah, and also yeah. I, I I think my my mindset is heavily influenced by Australian culture and also like U.S. culture. So mm, mm. I think another part that's really interesting about you that you were telling me the other day is you spend a lot of time with other founders. Like you talked about curiosity, and I know you've got a really good network of founders. What are some areas you've tapped into other founders that you're learning about? Like, give me some examples of questions that you ask other successful founders that helps you learn. I generally curious about that mindset of, of how do you think about the the principles running the business. I used to be very focused on we will build a hundred billion dollar business. Right, this is reverse engineer what that hundred billion dollar business looks like, and then and reverse engineer to today as in what do we need to build to get there. Right, that's the single focus. It's just like let's just disassemble everything. And just look at how that revenue got constructed, a hundred billion dollar business, and what do we need to build to get there? How do we scale? This is like mm. really focus on. I think what I learned from a lot of the Silicon Valley founders is really customer focus and problem focus. And then I think that will give you, I think that you may, will make a better decisions in terms of priority. I think end of the day, Air Wallace is nothing without its customers. So that if we laser focus on solving customers' problems and then the customer like is super happy with our product and services that and then that will help us to get that faster. Mm-hmm. I think like that customer first mindset is really kind of what I learned from some of the Silicon Valley founders. And I'm laser just, focus on that priority. Yeah. And are there any founders that you've met them and you're like, wow, they are very impressive that inspire you? I I I I have a bunch of friends that like super successful. I, I know Enrique from Brax really well. And he he and his his co-founder Pedro just very complement each other. And then Enrique is only like 28, right? So wow. I very rarely sort of meet somebody like every time we catch up, I learn something from him. This is probably the the most optimistic person I know in the world. Wow. He always think everything just gonna work out ultimately, right? So and you, you, you always, he's always open about sharing his, his lessons and failures and the success he had and always wanted his friends to be successful and helping his friends. And it's just very, very inspiring. And to, to hang out with somebody that always willing to share. Very close with the, the, the founder of MessageBird. Now they just rebranded to Bird. 
and, and they, they build an entire sort of network of, of carriers around the world to challenging Twilio to providing the best communication infrastructure to help businesses to sending text, SMS, and WhatsApp or other omni channels. But now they're building application layer, they, they a marketing platform, a CRM platform to help more than business to acquire customers, engage customers, and then and convert customers with, with payments. So they build an entire payment infrastructure on top of AirWallets. It's, it's almost like he's reinventing his businesses from a purely of infrastructure business to a application plus infrastructure business, and then challenging the the clavios of the attemptive of the world. It's very, very impressive founder. And then one thing I really like about him is like told me one thing I, I really changed my perspective life. He told me Dude, money is is fluid, but time is not. Mm. So that you should really spend your your time on things gonna evolve your life experience, and that's should you where you should spending uh, your time and effort on, just enrich yourself, enrich your experiences, and then spending. And I also learn a lot just spending time with 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 people that I feel I can learn from, and and also. If one thing I kind of figured this out myself is like think about the amount of people you can spend a significant amount of time in, in your in in your life. How many you can spend this amount of time with? I don't know, 20, 30 people. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you divide it by 50 weeks a year, like it can't be more than 50 people, right? Mm. Because I'm talking about like people you're spending time every year with. And I just wanted to build relationship that that can have a have an endurable sort of relationship it's just that you you want to spending time and effort on on somebody that you feel that you can have a lifelong relationship that can can kind of and you can keep learning from each other and rather than just spend like useless time on on something yeah that's so interesting and then let's talk a bit about venture capital and and some of the areas of venture capital that maybe aren't spoken about i think one is You've actually, I think, tweeted about this years ago, and I see this all the time, where there's this disconnect between founders and investors. Founders think they know more. Investors think they know more. You've raised a lot of money from very credible investors in Australia, Asia Pacific, US. What do you think is broken about the relationship between founders and investors that if you had a chance, you would want to fix? I don't know that there's a broken relationship. I have great relationship with my investors. I think you 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 have you start with engaging investors with your with your passion and honesty, what you actually wanted to build, right? I think that I I can't think of a, a, a investor like I I have like a really bad relationship with. If you think about Paul from from Squarepack and I, he inspired me to be entrepreneur, right? And we 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 talk about challenges and businesses and, and problems and, and personal life all the time. And that has been a great relationship. I, I don't have anything broken I can I can talk about. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. I, I realized that was a hard question. Maybe an aspect that you would have a view on that's unique is what's the biggest difference between Australian and, and US VCs in your experience? Like do uh, they ask different questions or they focus on different metrics? I didn't interact with Australian VC that much, apart from Paul from Scrapack. And I yeah. had one call with Airtree when I was early on, and they didn't understand what I was talking about. Yeah, uh, this is like a, a pointless conversation. Yeah, and I, I, I messaged the Blackbird guys and never got a response to have a conversation. Right, they they not interested in have a conversation. So 
that's all my interaction with with Australia VCs. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, and then we saw an announcement yesterday. You've announced a new partnership with McLaren F1. Congratulations! I'm a big Formula One fan, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to ask you for tickets now. So get ready for those <laughs> ticket requests. How does a partnership like that come about? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people involved, but just give me the summary. Is that an internal strategy at Airwallex, or did they approach you? How did that happen? I think as any company gets scale, one of the biggest challenges is, is how do you make your go-to-market uh, as efficient as possible? And it all comes down to brand and brand building. It's come down to the company's brand, the founder's brand, the, the, and the employer brand as well. And as a key sort of phase of Airwallex in the next decade, that if you wanted to be a bigger company, then the lack of HSBC and the Citibank, if we wanted to be the platform to allow modern businesses to operate and then grow globally, we, we need to have a, a, a much, much bigger brand and a trusted brand by millions of businesses around the world. I think partner with McLaren will help us to accelerate in that journey. We align from a, a core sort of philosophy pro point of view that engineering for excellence and in the core of Airwallis is we really engineering product-driven company that obsessed with our customers, obsessed with the operating speed, the efficiency, the craftsmanship, and 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 just the the, the mentality of never settle, just keep improving ourselves to go faster and 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 to, to win. And and then just from a culture point of view, there's a there's a massive alignment between the two organizations. And they have like tens of millions of followers around the world. And and as a lot of people see the show of Strive for Survive, mm-hmm. and that really expanded the the impact of F1 beyond the, the just racing. And we we as a as a company that scaling globally, we would love to be associated with with McLaren to to build the next phase of, of Airwallocks. And they're also using Airwallocks product to operating that internal finance team, right? So they they start using Airwallock to making vendor payments, or promoting that that treasury management using Airwallocks infrastructure. Then we we powering the, the 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 new merchandise platform they are building on on payments, credit card processing. So that's all like really exciting initiative to see like the, the brand that we sponsor to become a customer and then and then just uh, adopting modern financial technology to opening F1 team because they travel around the world, uh, they're paying people around the world, they're paying vendors around the world. That's just um, what Air Wallets do, right? They empower this global business to opening um, with much better technology and efficiency. Uh, so we're super excited for that for that sponsorship, and yeah. also the, the the driver Oscar is 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 from Melbourne, and yeah, uh, you know yeah. the, you know love to 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 sponsor a fellow Aussie driver and and, and help help them to to this building their career in in the world stage. Yeah, no, congrats! And are you a F one fan? Do you watch it? I only become an F one fan after the Netflix series. Oh, cool, cool! Because they've got three races in the US now, right? I think they got Vegas, Miami, and Austin. So. I'm yeah. sure you'll get a chance to go next year or this year, yeah. this year when they start. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Grand Prix in Melbourne is coming up in a mm. few months. I already got a lot of ping for tickets, so I'm sure <laughs> that you will see a lot of startup founders in Australia coming to our events. Yeah, they're very cool. And then maybe two other quick topics before we go to final sprint and finish is one of the partnerships you did was with the University of Melbourne for supporting international students, and you talked about your own experiences as an international student, so maybe just give us a quick summary of what is that partnership and how's it going. Uh, I think it's a multi-year partnership that for Airwallet is supporting students in in going to Melbourne. I think 
We spent, I think, more than $3 million to, to sponsor a scholarship program for student, I guess, academic excellence. We are probably the first uh, scholarship program that are inclusive of, of, of international students. So most of the scholarship programs I uh, have seen when I was uh, about to go to uh, university, I go to college, I don't have a lot of options. There's no full scholarship exists at a time for me to apply to because I had the, the financial difficulties when I was in the college. So that'd be great to have a scholarship program actually not just only offer to citizens and, and Australian PRs. So our program is inclusive of everyone. So regardless whether you are Australian citizen or PR or, or international student, you can apply the scholarship of our program we 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 very inclusive from that front, and just as long as you a, a fulfill our our criteria of the program and it was engineering like with sort of academic excellence, we able to support you. Mm. I think on that point, one thing I'd love to see in Australia is more more people like me and you that are founders in Australia. I think there's not enough ethnic diversity, right? That hopefully scholarships like this promote is give more people from Asian backgrounds the confidence to go build a startup. Yeah, well, there's there's plenty in in the US, and I you know, mm. wish to see that more in Australia, of course. Mm. Mm. And then talk about is it Capital Forty Nine your fund? Yeah, so I have a I have a personal fund, so like a hundred percent owned by myself, uh, called Capital Forty Nine that invests in early stage fintech and software companies around the world. And and you actively invest, like founders reach out to you, or do you? Do you invest in particular yeah, we, categories? Yeah, we made we made close to a dozen investment in the last two years, and and we we continue to to seek opportunities around the world. Well, we are coming to the end, so I want to move to rapid fire final sprint to close us out. Is there one non work investment, ideally of time and energy, that you've made that you consider the best in your life? I I found golf is probably the most difficult spot to get better. <laughs> uh, so I would, would continue to invest my time into improving my games. Nice. Is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months? I had a, like a new year resolution. I want to meet like 10 influenced people in the world this year. So let's see who I meet and, and I'll be able to learn from them. Oh, wow. Is there anyone you've met this year that, that meets your criteria? I'm hoping to meet Taylor Swift next month. Oh wow, that's incredible! That's yeah. That's she had really a cool. she had a concert in in Singapore, and uh, I'm working on the opportunity to to meet her. <laughs> That'd be a great brand ambassador for Airwallex if you can if you can secure that. So, <laughs> is there one pet peeve that you have that really annoys you? I hate arrogant people. Although, like a lot of people think I'm arrogant, I I don't think I don't think so. I think I I may look like. Hard to approach, but I'm actually fairly easy to to approach. And I, I I've met great founders around the world, but I also met very arrogant founders. You could be very successful, but if you're not a, a very nice person or not willing to help others, I mean, what what are you? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I think I think introverts. I'm an introvert too, and introverts get get considered to be arrogant because we don't talk as much. We sit at the back or stand in the corner and people think that's arrogant. So I, I, <laughs> I get that as well. And then last one, is there a person or quote that inspires you? I, I think what I really like the moment is what my, my friend Rob told me. Wealth is fluid, but, but time is not. 
mm-hmm. uh, and I've been really sort of focused on getting the best life experience uh, for me and then for people around me. No, very good note to end on. Well, that's the finish line, Jack. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you were a bit skeptical. You're like, what is he going to ask me? So hopefully you enjoyed this and, and really appreciate your time. Thanks, Vedit. I enjoy, truly enjoy the conversation and let's catch up in person soon. Well, there you have it. That's the end of my conversation with Jack Zhang in this episode 157. At the start of this year, 2024, we set ourselves a goal here on the High Flyers podcast to feature guests who've had an outsized impact on society but rarely do public interviews. We continue to hit this goal at a 100% success rate. Jack, as many of you know, rarely does these interviews. My key takeaways from this conversation were mainly around Jack's ability to transition and back himself. Whether it was moved to Australia as a 15-year-old, was starting 10 companies, one of which, which became Airwallex, and the realities of building Airwallex. We cover a lot of various aspects that he hasn't spoken about and that more founders should know about. So I really hope you enjoyed this one. As always, all my details are in the show notes. If you want to get in touch anytime, I'll catch you very soon.